Upland Nomads are brought to you by Kuga Vest, a vest that provides serious protection for your dog. Fit and Fetch Outdoors, a CBD dog chew that is made to improve performance and decrease any unwanted stress on your dog's body. We are also brought to you by Mossy Oak Sport Dog, a line of products meant to keep your canine clean and clean smell. Welcome to the Upland Nomads Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Upland Nomads podcast. I'm finally back, joined with my co-host Michael Colmas. Been absent the last few weeks. <laughs> I say not much happening. We finally got the snow off the ground here, so the flooding I think is at bay now. So we can kind of run our dogs without having to give them a bath every time they go outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> That's all I got on that. So we'll introduce you to our, our guests for today's show, Michael Mortara. Perfect. I think nailed I, it, dude. <laughs> I nailed it. Nice. People have been getting that wrong my whole life. Did you know that on the first try? That's awesome. Nice. No, <laughs> I, usually I forgot to ask. Usually I started last week's and I was like, oh crap, I better shut this off and get back on and ask him what is, how to pronounce his name. Uh, I because... hate that when you meet, meet someone, turn away and automatically forget their name (laughs) so michael where are you coming from uh right now i'm sitting about uh oh just outside the town of glendive montana um me and my fiance come up here for a month a year and run dogs and friends of ours have a six thousand acre cattle ranch and uh so they come here for a month and spend some time with them and help them brand their cattle just kind of hang out here Um, we got a house up in northeast corner of montana in the town of fort peck uh, so we'll be up there here at the end of the month after we go home and go home for some family events. We're originally from California. I grew up in the Bay Area, California, born and raised in Oakland. Most people don't think of California as a hunting state, obviously, <laughs> uh, but a lot of people don't know about 45 minutes outside San Francisco's the Sassoon Marsh, and it holds more wintering ducks than most states. Um, so yeah, I kind of grew up uh, out there and. uh Always came out to Montana. I had plenty of friends that uh, made over the years coming out, and I always knew I was going to move out here. Never thought there'd really be like a land rush to get out here. I always thought I had time. And obviously, over the last maybe five, six years, you know, the popularity of certain TV shows and whatnot, people have kind of come and moved out. But um, yeah, man, I think it's great. You know, I'm glad the state's growing a little bit. You know, as long as it continues to keep its roots and keep its values, I think it's great. But yeah. I think everybody knows the certain TV show that we're talking about. <laughs> it's funny too, because like, uh, like, like everyone talks about everyone moving to Montana, but like really, like where I'm at, you know, this part of the state, I'm on the eastern half of the state, you know, kind of out in the prairie, and uh, right here is kind of like the start of the Badlands that ends up becoming kind of Theodore Roosevelt State Park on the North Dakota side. But yeah, um, yeah, you know, out here is a little bit, a lot different than what you see on the TV show. You know, like there's someone actually who uh, was a friend of ours who was saying like, man, I keep seeing your your videos and pictures on social media of like Montana shows, I don't see any mountains. I'm like, yeah, we're, we're out here in the, the rolling prairie, you know? So it's very different, you know, than like what you see on TV and the kind of like what people think of when they think of Montana and people don't realize how big of a state Montana is too. I mean, Montana is, Montana is almost as wide as Texas, you know? So, I mean, it's a huge state, um, you know, a lot of different type of ecotypes. That's why I love it too. I mean, you can hunt, I mean, across the state, I mean, you run into all kinds of different types of game, all types of different game birds. I mean, there's pheasants all obviously splattered out across the state, sage grouse, sharp-tailed grouse, rough grouse, blue grouse, you know, Hungarian partridge, waterfowl. I'm not even talking about big game, you know, so it's, yeah. it's a unique place. You know, it's always had a special place in my heart, and I'm glad, you know, I'm finally able to call it home. Nice. Yeah, it's basically just an, uh, an extension of North Dakota where you are. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. I mean, yeah. I mean, I lived in uh, – Stanley, North Dakota for a little bit, uh, for a short period of time. Been up there, North Dakota, a bunch hunting. Um, have some friends out there. Um, this part of Montana is like pretty much, it's exactly the same thing, right? It's the continuation of the prairie. You know, this, in my opinion, like this area of the country, literally if you drew a line from Great Falls all the way through Minot and kind of took that block right there, it's probably the best sharp tail habitat in the world. Um, Hungarian partridge, you know, even though they're not native, you know, Great habitat for them. Great numbers. I feel like it holds the strongest numbers um, across the across the country. 
there might be a few other places that like that are up there but um yeah i mean it's it's great i mean it's there's so much history here too that's part of living here you know just like the history of the west you know kind of like everything that took place out here everyone coming across through here you know a guy like me i love country westerns you know lonesome dove the whole idea of like you know <laughs> coming out here and starting something you know it's like you know a little bit of a romanticized idea but yeah, man, it's a, it's a unique place, and, like, especially this part of the of the state, this part of the country, like you guys know, it's just for guys that are into the things that we're into, which is birds and bird dogs. I mean, that's my passion with wild birds and wild places, and the lower 48 doesn't get too much more, you know, wild than, you know, Montana. <clears throat> so speaking of the brought-up bird dogs here real quick, I remember on the last kind of Beer 30 we talked about, you have quite a bit of dogs, so what kind of dogs yeah. do you all have? Uh, right now, I got 10 dogs. I have uh, eight German shorthairs and two English cockers. Um, I have two shorthairs who are under six months, so, you know, they're pups, but one of them is going to a buddy of mine at some point. But, yeah, I mean, uh, so I do a lot of guiding. Uh, that's how I make my living. I'm, you know, I guide professionally, and by that, all I mean is that, you know, I make my living guiding and working dogs. So, you know, my season starts, you know, when the hunting season starts, which is September 1st for, you know, I think everywhere across the country, pretty much for birds. September 1st, I hunt all the way until, you know, the end of March, first week of April. So, you know, to have dogs that can last that far, you really need a team of dogs and really a rotation. Um, you know, the last two seasons I've been down in the Southeast in the Piney, Piney Woods uh, in Georgia guiding. So obviously late season there particularly can be really hard on dogs. So I try to have as many dogs as possible, as many young dogs as possible, kind of working them through. Um <clears throat> You know, the advantage of working on a plantation is that you can take young dogs and really kind of accelerate that learning curve and really get them started quick. Um, you know, my whole kind of theory on like bird dogs is it takes birds to make a bird dog, right? So <clears throat> I really kind of like the way I build my dogs in my mind is that like my season for building them kind of starts when my guide season ends. I'm taking young dogs, <clears throat> getting them started with the basics, you know, obviously recall, um, obedience. Um, just kind of the manners around the kennel, the manners kind of going in and out of the, the box. Once I get that kind of established, I'm not going to kind of get them back with some recall. You know, my whole theory is like how many birds can I put in front of their face? You know, <clears throat> the birds are going to teach them as much as, much as possible, particularly the wild birds. And another reason why I kind of live here in this area of the world is in the off season, you know, I got birds right out my front door. I mean, I've been out here for now. I got back to Montana, what was it, a couple weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, maybe a month now. And I mean, Oh, I've done every single day. Just go out and kind of let the dogs roam, you know, and bump into birds here and there. You know, at this point in the season, my older dogs, I they're just kind of stretching it out. You know, they're getting some points. The birds are kind of cagey, so I'm just kind of letting them, you know, kind of enjoy life as a dog right now um, until we kind of get going here first week of June for, like, getting tightened up for the season. And my young dogs, <clears throat> I just want them to hopefully run as many birds as they can as we're out there playing around, you know, not get lost, you know, kind of learn that they're following me out there. Um, so that's kind of what this part of this is kind of my little bit of the lax part of the time of the year for me, I guess I would say. I mean, we're working <clears throat> on obedience and stuff like that. I'm constantly doing obedience with my dogs, just keeping it sharp. And I got some uh, aspirations for some you know, trials and hunt tests with my cocker. So obviously doing some stuff with him, some line steadiness and uh, stuff like that. But yeah, man, I mean, that's <clears throat> that's I got, like I said, this, this, the seven short hairs or eight short hairs and the two cockers. And the two cockers are probably the funnest to work with because. Yeah, they're flushers, man. You get to turn them into little serial killers, let them loose. And just like their whole exuberance for life, man, is like infectious. I mean, as much as like the short hairs have the style and the athleticism and they're the, really like the idea of a bird dog. When someone sees an English cocker spaniel come back with a rooster pheasant in its mouth, you know, you can't help but smile. I mean, you just really can't. They're both the size of it. They're little balls of energy too running around out there. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> there are some some geese out here by one of the cattle ponds and my cocker ran down there and he eyed up that, that honker. <laughs> and he, I could see him thinking about it. <laughs> no, I, my uh, Willow has had her fair share of... She actually chased a couple Canada geese one time. I was getting ready for work in the morning and my wife was taking her outside and off leash, everything. All of a sudden, Willow just started running and at this point, she was still pretty young, and she's like, she came running inside, and I'm like, where's our dog? And she's like, she won't listen to me. She's chasing these geese. I'm like, oh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> Dude, I, uh, my oldest short hair was the first dog I ever had on my own, Duke. He's a, a solid black short hair, and <clears throat> at a year old, I ended up taking him out 
and I ended up hunting with Ron Bame and Tyler Webster. And they can tell you this story. We shot a honker out in this deep water slough, and he's still alive. And so I send my short. He's probably about a year old at this point. I sent him out for this retrieve. You know, I've been doing all these water retrieves with him and was a waterfowl guide part-time at the time. And he gets out. He swims out in this slough, and this honker is just waiting. He just can, proceeds to beat the shit out of him with his wing. Just, ah, bah, bah, bah. Poor little short hair comes swimming back to get the bird retrieved. And to this day, that dog's probably had, I can't even put a number on the amount of retrieves he's had on different types of geese. But if it's a honker, he'll go up to it, swat it with his paw to see if it's alive. If it is, jumps right in the back of the head, crushes it, and then it'll go, he hates them. <laughs> he hates them. They'll pull their feathers out and stuff. Dude, I never forgot that. I, thought, I was afraid I actually ruined him for a minute because, you know, he got, got his ass beat. I was afraid he wouldn't want to go out and retrieve anymore. But, you know, credit to him being such a birdie dog. You know, it didn't. That's crazy. Yeah, hunkers are mean, man. People don't realize, dude. Birds are evil. They're mean. <laughs> I don't mean they to charge you. Know, <laughs> help them, dude. But hey, you ever like you got a rooster pheasant that you cripple and he comes back? He's gonna try and spur you good. I've got some deep cuts before from a rooster pheasant being mad that you know <laughs> he got his wing snapped. A load of fives. <laughs> yeah, I say it depends which dog brings them back for me. Yeah, cash will leave nothing. <laughs> that bird would well, be a bird left. Oh, <laughs> well, there'd be a bird left. <laughs> He's actually gotten really good, honestly. That's good. It'll be interesting to see uh, how he does with actual feathers in his mouth. He's yeah. a short hair, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's got last year, he was pretty young, too. So. Yeah. yeah, last year he was what, four months old when we took him to Montana. My my, uh, uh, my dad and my grandfather all growing up would always say about short hair. They'd say hard-headed, hard-mouthed German dogs. And we're in... They're Italian, so you know, but they would always say that about them: hard head, hard mouth. And I always now, as I've gotten older, I've tried to like search out. I'm very selective about dogs that I kind of grab, but a dog with a soft mouth is something that I kind of look for because, dude, you get some of like I have one dog that I got later in life. You know, he's he's like five or six. I've had him for about a year now, and dude, squeeze the guts <laughs> out of the ass. I mean, he's death grip, dude. <laughs> You know, so I try to work with them with that one at a young age, you know, and try to get that out of them. But yeah, dude, short hair sometimes, man. They don't, they get that taste of meat. They want to go for it. Yeah, I say Riggs didn't want to, Riggs didn't uh, retrieve for me for like the first, pretty much the whole first year. And then I think it just got to be a competition thing when we're out west pheasant hunting. It just got to be, uh, my cousin's labs would bring out the birds back, and he's like, "Well, hey, I found that bird," and all of a sudden it just like clicked. I shot a rooster over his point, like I was up top, and he was down in this like, let's say like a like a little bit of a ravine, and uh, all of a sudden he's bringing this rooster all the way back up the top. So they finally that's the clicked. Best. That's my favorite part, man. Yeah, it's like, like what you just said like, when it clicks. Like my favorite part of training dogs is taking young dogs and getting them started. Yeah. Just, you know, it's something about like developing a dog and just when you kind of see it, that dog becomes a bird dog, not just a dog, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there, uh, nothing really beats it for me, you know, seeing them kind of figure it out. And All right. Technical difficulties. Host computer decided <laughs> to crash. Um, so Michael, Kind of got into your hunting background a little bit before this, but uh, you talked about being from California. Uh, not a known, not known for a hunting state or even a gun to even carry a gun in, but um, yeah. Um, what got you started being in Cali? Yeah, um, well, my, it was all it was handed down like you know, I think probably the majority of the people, right? Um, through family. Uh, my grandfather came to California in 1918. He was 10 years old. He came from Italy, northern Italy, uh, you know, as an immigrant. And he, they hunted in Italy, but they hunted for subsistence. They hunted mostly hares. And I think that's some kind of partridge that they would hunt out there. Um, but anyway, he came to uh, the United States and kind of found paradise as far as hunting. That was kind of passed down. Uh, he didn't have my dad until he was about 50. But when he had my dad, my uncle's. <laughs> My dad was born in late 50s. My uncle was born in late 50s. So they were kind of like 60s, 70s, kind of the heyday of bird hunting in the United States. And uh, so a lot of people don't know, like I said, a lot of people don't know that California offers hunting. But at that time, just outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, it was all farmland. 
Um, so you could literally hunt anywhere out in the valley. Even to this day, now if you go about an hour uh, east of San Francisco, you're what you're in what you call the Sacramento Valley, and has some of the best duck hunting in the world. Even to this day, um, you know people who like to follow hunting TV, you know shows like The Fat Life, uh, they go out there a lot now, but. Um, especially in the 60s, 70s, a lot of rice production. And a lot of people don't know that, especially uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, behind the Dakotas, that fe- uh, pheasant hunting, California had some of the highest numbers of pheasant hunters in the nation, um, like I said, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So that was kind of where it was passed down from. Uh, when I grew up, my dad and uncle had already started a small waterfowl guiding business uh, outside the town of Richville, California. So I was kind of baptized right into it from the beginning. Um my dad was taking me out to the duck blind in diapers. Um, after he would hunt ducks in the morning, he would take clients out. They would shoot their ducks. They would get done. In the mid-morning to late afternoon, he would take me out. And we'd hit the rice fields. Then we'd go hunt for pheasants and valley quail. Um, he always had a German short hair. And that was just kind of how it got started. Um, as I got older, my dad uh, particularly kind of got into big game hunting and ran to a gentleman by the name of Mike Westervelt who at the time was like a big time deer hunter in the country. He lived in California. He was actually raising rabbits to be sold to uh, the Berkeley labs to do like uh, testing for like what you have now, for like chemo, chemo treatments and stuff like that. But he was a big time deer hunter. Got my dad into it. And uh, so I kind of grew up watching my dad kind of figure out how to become a big game hunter and kind of how to like guide people in both waterfowl and upland guiding scenarios. Um, so once I got into like college, I played college baseball and kind of as a side hustle, I would guide waterfowl hunts um, for my dad and uncle and for friends of theirs. And that kind of got me going and off and running and uh, just kind of grew into eventually I started taking people out pig and uh, blacktail deer hunting. Then I got into doing big time mule deer hunts up in northern Oregon. I've done elk guiding. I've done a little bit of whitetail deer guiding. And now, like I said, I do most of my guiding for upland birds. Um this upcoming year, I won't be back down in South Georgia. I'll be back on the West Coast guiding. But, yeah, man, it's just been kind of a wild ride. Hunting's taken me a lot of crazy places. Like, my passion in life is wild birds and wild places. Um, like I said, I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in, you know, the concrete jungle. Um, but I always kind of had, like, this hidden life. Uh, kind of when I would leave school where I would kind of go with my dad and go hunting. Like, my senior year of high school, my principal called my dad and was like, hey, your boy is missing every Monday morning class for the last month and we're kind of and i went to a private christian school on a baseball scholarship so he was like you know we're kind of afraid that he may be in like the party scene or he may be out you know doing drugs or something like that my dad was like i'll have a talk to him i'll figure it out and my dad knew exactly what it was a month earlier california pheasant season had started so every monday morning i would take my dad's short hair and disappear <laughs> into the rice country shoot a limited roosters and go to school in the afternoon make it back in time for baseball practice after school um so that was kind of like the life I was living as a, as a high school student. And then like, you know, I would always just disappear for a week in the fall. My dad would take us out hunting with his friends, either in Montana or somewhere you know, out here in the Intermountain West. And uh, yeah, dude, it's blossomed into a, a career and a, a whole life. And like I said, I think I've been to 42 states now. I think it is something like that. 42 states out of the lower 48. Um, all from, you know, hunting, guiding, hunting on my own. Um, I used to chase ducks, you know, kind of from the border all the way down. Um, and now dude, my passion really is just the dogs. And like I said, chasing up one game in the most wild places I could find. Get it. It's a little deeper in your hunting background. You just say mainly now you're up on hunting. What birds do you all target? Like not necessarily if say you're not guiding, what birds do you want to target the most? Yeah. My favorite bird to hunt is I love hunting wild pheasants and I love hunting valley quail. And I probably, it's just probably just because that's what I grew up hunting. Um, I love the challenge that they kind of present. They don't necessarily offer the best dog work, um, but they offer like a unique style of dog work. It's not the the pretty liver-headed pointers of the south with big 12 o'clock tails standing there tall for 20 minutes while you climb down off the carriage. Um, you know, it's kind of a running gun. Valley quail, I love how... Uh, a certain friend of mine he describes me calls them they're trashy flyers you know they get up they're going to use uh structure and and different types of brush to their to their advantage to kind of move around they, they'll run enough to get away they'll live in any kind of environment 
They'll live in the desert. They'll live in the high mountain meadows. They'll live on the edge of agriculture. They'll live in a vineyard. Um, so I, I really, really love valley quail. Uh, like I said, pheasants have probably taken me, you know, were the first bird that started taking me out of state. As the California pheasant population started to crash in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was kind of starting to look my eye elsewhere. You know, this is like, as I'm growing up, hunting TV has kind of become more and more popular. I know people like hate to hear that, that hunting TV is like, you know, something that got people into hunting. It didn't get me into hunting, but it fed my passion. I grew up watching the VHS monster bucks, you know, eight, nine and 10 or whatever. Um, So seeing guys hunting, doing what I was doing in California, but doing it in other states and seeing the numbers of birds they were seeing. And then also we were going, we would go out of state to like Montana and wouldn't have to hunt, but we were hunting big game and we would bring shotguns and you would see just, you know, crazy numbers of birds while you were out there. And so my dad would always say, you know, we should bring the dog out here. Well, he never did. Well, when I got my own dog, that's what I started doing with the dog. I was like, I'm going to chase these bird numbers. I'm going to do all my research. I'm going to read everything I can. I'm going to watch everything I can. I'm going to listen to everything I can. I'm going to find out where the best bird numbers are in this country. And I'm going to go find it. I'm going to go hunt there. And that led me to North Dakota. It led me to Montana. It led me to you know, Kansas, South Dakota, Nebraska. It led me to meet, you know, Ron Bain on the Hunting Dog Podcast. Let me to read Tyler, meet Tyler Webster. And it led me to meet you guys. It led me to meet some of my closest friends I have in this world. Um, is all through like this sport and dogs and, and bird dogs. So like, yeah, man, sorry. I kind of rambled there, but to answer your question, you know, really pheasants and, and valley quail was kind of started to pull me, but now it's more than a bird. It really is an experience. You know, I'm looking to hunt in certain places, you know, I really want to get down to Arizona and chase the desert quail. You know, I really want to get down. I really have to get down to Mexico and chase quail down in Mexico. And, uh, you know, I've got some, those are kind of like my bucket list things. And then also getting up, uh, I'd like to get up into the Pacific Northwest or Alaska and, and shoot some of those sea ducks out there that are kind of, you know, pretty rare, but yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I go for the experience while a wild place that holds wild birds. You can get me to go. I mean, pretty much you give me the invite. I'll go. Like I, as far as like uh, things that kind of get done, you know, like in the upcoming years, like my oldest dog, he's all those species I'm talking about that I've hunted, I hunted with him. I'd like to kind of try and get the majority of the upland birds in this country with him because I think it just speaks to a dog that I got for, for free at a gas station can go out there and hunt every species. He is so versatile that he can hunt every species of bird on this continent and also include retrieving ducks and he'll Fight a, rac- fight a raccoon out of the yard, he'll, you know, but dig a badger out of a hole, you know. And I think that's kind of the way, you know, I know how we kind of like, we're, you know, we're bird hunters, right? And I love field trials. I love watching a, like I said, a big liver-headed pointer or a setter get on point and be stylish. But like for me, that versatility of a short hair is like what man and dog originally was. You know what I mean? Like a dog that was there, he could do whatever you needed him to do, you know, to get it done. And that's kind of like the way I look at it. But yeah, man. I mean, like I said, I'll go anywhere to hunt birds, literally anywhere. Good. So getting into kind of your guiding background, we already kind of talked about how you got started, kind of like a family. It's not like it's a family, yeah. family, tradi- tra- family tradition. Family. Yeah, family affair. Um. So where do you all guide, like, upland bird hunting, in, like a typical season for you? Yes. Yeah, so, so for me, like, um, what I do is, like, I'm going to run dogs here for myself until November. <clears throat> you know, I try to make enough money um, guiding through the fall, extending my season all the way through, and then working dogs in the summer. Um, that The first couple of months here, I can just, you know, kind of relax and work my own dogs to get them ready for the season. My guiding season starts usually, like, end of October, beginning of November, right about when it starts to get kind of, like, unbearable for the snow here <laughs> when it starts to kind of get kind of cold overnight you know i start kind of i kind of follow the duck south um so yeah once i once i leave here i'll go straight to some you know like i said in the past years i've been going down to plantation a plantation down in georgia to guide uh, this year i'll go out west to a ranch out in oregon um is the plan and um yeah man so that's kind of like the way it goes as far as starting and then i'll guide like i said all the way through the winter and you know, that's kind of the advantage i know like you know, preserve and plantation hunting can kind of get a bad rap, but, you know, I can extend my season all the way to April. I can work young dogs all the way through April. Um, 
you know, that for me is the advantage. I can make a living for six months out of the year doing it and make a good enough living to kind of try and, you know, live comfortably for the rest of the year. Um, I do have a couple other side things that I do that aren't related to hunting as far as making money, but, um, yeah, man, I mean, that's kind of the basic go around. I mean, I've got my start. The first like major place I started guiding was, um, a place called Flint Oak Lodge in Kansas. And I think I went down there middle, middle of November and, that was kind of like my first experience to like the kind of like that, the upper like resort level type hunting, I'll say I, that's probably a terrible way to describe it, but kind of a, a place where people aren't just coming just to hunt. They're coming for an experience. They're coming to kind of relax to do business type thing. So it's a different kind of guiding. And then when I was guiding for, let's say mule deer, where it was me one-on-one with a client or, you know, when I was guiding, you know, waterfowl guys, when it was me, just, it was, it was my, you know, it was me guiding for me, guiding a waterfowl clients in California. Most of the people that I knew, most of the people that have been referred to me, you know, through other clients, whereas now you're going to a place where you're, don't know who you're getting, you're getting Jim from HR who's never had a gun before, you know, so it's a little bit different. Um, I really enjoyed, I enjoy meeting people. Um, I enjoy like seeing people get their first experience kind of with hunting in a kind of a, a controlled environment or you're kind of setting them up for success. Um, you know, there is a, like a bit of diminishing returns on that. Cause I think there is, it's kind of like having kids play T-ball, right? You want your kid to play T-ball cause you want them to get a good foundational start, but you don't mm-hmm. want your kid at 18 to still be needing a tee to hit the ball. Right. You want them to be able to kind of take the next steps and kind of advance. And I, I see preserve implantation and that kind of, hunting kind of in that light is like man it's a great tool to, to, to do outreach it's great for like maybe people who physically can't get out there and do it and you know it's you know i know people complain about it but it is great for guys like us who like to go out there and hunt wild birds because it puts lots of a strain on the wild bird population so is plantation hunting is that basically just like a game preserve no i mean every plantation is different you have wild bird preserves you have pre-release preserves you have put and take you know preserves and plantations i'm using those words some you know interchangeably but they are different right so if you go down to south georgia you can pay anywhere from a couple hundred bucks for a hunt to go out there and shoot you know preserve put and take bobwhite quail or you could pay 25 grand for two days to go out there on a wild bird sprawling plantation on horseback with some of the best dogs you've ever seen okay there's like varying levels of this you know um the plantation i worked at you know had pre-release birds that they call you know so they they had wild birds out there but they were also releasing birds not put and take but supplementing the population throughout the year with free releases um you know that's how i would say that's how most places do it i hope i'm not telling some kind of inner 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 you know secret of the industry if i am i don't i don't care you know um but most places, you know, you're going for for a quail hunt. You're still getting some bird that's, you know, and really in South Dakota, if you're going out there for a pheasant hunt, there are releasing pheasants out there as well. Um, yep. You know, it's kind of the dirty little secret of like, you know, the open world is like, hey, there aren't bird populations quite like the 60s and 70s and 80s anymore. Like, so some of these places where you guys see people going and there's 35 rooster pheasants strung up on a board. Right. Guess wow. what? They all were they all didn't start their life in a nest on the ground, not getting predated by a possum or a raccoon. They started their life as a chick in an incubator. And then he was released out there at some point in the season. Um, no, I, I mean, think, he, he might have, I think some you know, of those South Dakota places, like the lodges, uh, I don't know quite what they are. I think they might be like a put and take. I think if you, I think if you, I think it is actually put and take. Cause I've heard, People talk to say if you shot 500 pheasants, they have to put 500 back in or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's like different programs, man. Look, I don't know why it becomes like a thing where people feel like they have to be cloak and dagger with certain stuff. Okay. Certain places do certain things. Isn't Montana you talking know, about? Uh, there's a big, there's a huge discussion here about putting money towards, you know, releasing birds out there to kind of supplement the population. A guy like me, you're going to ask my personal opinion. Here's what I believe. I believe every single dollar that's being used for that program should be put in the habitat. You want more birds on the landscape, more habitat. You want more birds on the landscape, you know, you have to have a higher success rate for nests that's less predation, that's better trapping. You know, you want to talk about why California's pheasant, you know, population crashed. 
in the early 2000s, they discovered West Nile virus. Someone got West Nile virus from a mosquito. So now it becomes for the good of the, you know, the population, for the good of the constituents of the state of California, we're going to spray roadside ditches now to kill mosquitoes. Well, that kills every little invertebrate insect that's growing in that roadside ditch. Peasant chicks for the first few weeks of their life cannot break down grain and corn and whatnot. So they're eating little invertebrates. You've taken, you know, that level of food off the table. Also, you all, you're seeing right now, like on social media, everyone, you know, delay roadside, you know, uh, mowing till later yep. into June. I think South uh, Dakota you, does a pretty good job of that. I think um, North Dakota too, right? Don't you guys are pretty like there's a, I think it's late for the mowing, yeah? And all I'm that. not positive. I just know like going through South Dakota, like they do a, a pretty good job of like not mowing yeah. the ditches right away. So Yeah. And what you usually find is states where part of their, you know, their revenue base or a, a majority of their revenue stream is through hunting. They're going to look to, you know, Right. That's right. the whole that's the whole argument about conservation and hunting, right? Or the whole you know, we talk about like places like Africa and I have to take this down a rabbit hole, but like, you know, it's wildlife paying for itself. Places right. like South Dakota, Montana, North Dakota know that, hey, welcome hunters because they know a certain amount of their revenue every year coming to their state is coming through guys to come hunt. So of course they want more wildlife on the landscape, you know. And, you know, that's like Going back to California, you know, like spraying the roadside ditch and then mowing the roadside ditch. My buddy worked for like a state refuge and they would mow at certain times and he would watch them. He'd watch the blades mow up, you know, pheasant nests and pheasant chicks. But hey, some bureaucrat above me says, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. California doesn't care about revenue from hunters. They could care less. No. Yeah. You know, they, they, it doesn't, it's not a huge part of the economy. So what they're looking to, you know, to protect is other interests. Um, you know, to continue to go down a rabbit hole, like there's a whole discussion up here in this part of Montana about switching the licensing system to where like North Dakota is, which is upland hunters can no longer buy a season license or a three day license. They can only buy a 14 day license, right? Like North Dakota does two seven day periods for a total of 14 days. And yeah, you know, so they want to do that. Two fives. Yeah. Two fives. Right. And they want to, you know, they want to knock down the competition, right? For for guys who are in-state hunters, totally understand, right? I believe the interests of in-state hunters should be protected first. But you know, what about you know Jimmy and Johnny Smith who own the local hotel, you know, in town, and during hunting season he makes his biggest nut during the hunting season. You know, now you're affecting him. You know, there's there's other ways to look at it too. You know, I look at it too. Like, how many guys are really hunting 14 days? Not too many guys are hunting 14 days in another state, right? South Dakota, North Dakota do it because the neighboring states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois can come over multiple weekends, right? And you could go a whole season doing weekend trips. I feel yeah. like Montana to get up to Northeast Montana, you know, North Central Montana. No matter where you're coming from. You're coming. You're making the effort to get up there. I don't know how many guys. Most guys don't have the dog power to hunt for more than four days. You know. So, but hey, I just moved here. I don't. You know. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. You know. Like, I, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter to me anymore. You know. I'm a. I'm a resident now. It doesn't matter to me. You know. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's something. You know, I feel like there's enough space for all of us to share. Like, yeah, your your hunting spot right outside of town that you've been going to after work five minutes away every single day. There may be some dude with a, you know, you know, a legion, you know, a Illinois, a Illinesian, what do they call the guys from Illinois or a Wisconsin <laughs> or a Minnesota license plate, right? In the parking lot. Like, hey, man, for me, like that kind of stuff, it does get annoying. you like, don't get me wrong. Like everyone, there's two groups of hunters, right? There's, there's my group and then there's the assholes over there. So like everyone kind of has that dichotomy, but like, there's plenty of space. Dude, I found some of my best spots from being forced to go outside of my comfort zone and stop hitting the same, you know, like, I know there's birds over here. Like, let's go out and find something different. Like, there's, I feel like there's enough space for all of us to kind of go out there and, and, and share, you know, be good Americans. So, getting Sorry, into, I have to rant. I apologize. Sorry. No, it's right. <laughs> so, getting back on topic and we'll get off of uh, hunting just in general for a little bit here. Um, you start, recently started your own, maybe it hasn't been recently. But you have your own kennel, right? Mortara family yeah. kennel. Yeah, just recent, like a literally a night. I think maybe a year old, not quite a year old yet. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, um, 
I needed more dogs to guide with. I started with one, then it was two, then it was four, not 10. Um, so, and then I just have a love for particularly the German short hair breed. Um, I'm not really big into breeding. Like I'm very selective about the dogs that I pick. I'm a snob about the dogs that I, that I pick. Um, in the future, you know, I'll probably do one or two here or there. There are some like, you know, traits and genetics that I'm kind of putting together. Um, but breeding is not really my goal. Um, my goal really was just to kind of provide a place where I've been doing a lot of traveling cross, cross country and been transporting dogs for people, kind of starting a little business with that. Um, we did build a kennel up here in Montana where you can board pets. Um, you know, I do do some training of my own. I don't consider myself a professional trainer, but people say that technically I probably am because I have started training other people's dogs. But, you know, I'm a baby in the training world as far as I'm concerned. There's so many guys out there that are so good at working the dog. And I feel like, you know, I'm just barely kind of scraping the surface of that world. Um, I've always trained my own dogs. I feel like my dogs are, you know, of a, of a certain quality. I feel like they're, you know, I don't like bragging on them because as soon as you brag on them, they'll go out there and make a liar out of you. But, um, you know, yeah, like I have, I have some aspirations as far as just like, you know, starting a business, but really, you know, for me, you know, all based kind of around hunting and hunting dogs, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the groundwork of that. It's like I said, it's very, in it's infant stage, but, um, it's going well, man. It's fun. It's, it's chasing a passion now. Um, I've had two passions in my life. One was playing baseball and one was, uh, was hunting and, uh, I chased baseball until I ran out of talent and now I'll chase hunting until, you know, they put me in a pine box. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so what kind of, uh, or training methods, like what kind of training do you do there? Man, my theory is like real simple. Um, like I said, I really like starting dogs and my theory is that birds make a bird dog. Um, so I got four acres here. I'm just kind of going through the process of like acquiring like home and pigeons. Um, this will be like our first time, like our first year, like really like settling in here for like a, a good stay. Um, so my real theory, like I said, is birds make a bird dog. I try to give them the basics, a, a foundation is what I tried to build. I want my dogs to be able to be both, you know, good pets, you know, good home dogs and good field dogs. So I try to give them the basics as far as I want to recall. I want to be able to keep them either in a crate a kennel or a box and not have a mess every morning when I come in there necessarily. Okay. So maybe not necessarily house trained, but, but kennel manners is what I call it. I want a dog to be able to, when I open the crate, it's not going to jump into my chest and knock me out of the way to get into the field. I want that dog to be able to understand that I'm going to put the collar on once the collar's on. And once I give you the, okay, now you can go ahead and go out there and air it out, air it out. I want you to get out there and go as far as you can. Um, once they kind of have that foundation, then my next uh, step with them is, okay, let's put wild birds in front of you. Like I said, that's why I live here um, because I can put wild birds in front of them at a young age. I love training on sharp tails for multiple reasons. One, young sharp tails hold great for a bird dog. Two, sharp tails fly really far so the dog's not going to catch. And number three is as the season goes on, as that dog continues to progress and learn, the sharp tails are also progressing and learning, and they're letting them get less and less close as the season goes on. Right now, the sharp tails will let my dogs get within 50, 60 yards of them. You know, in August, September, we can get within 5, 10, 20 yards, depending on where we're hunting, how much pressure's been, you know, how many times they've been bumped during the, you know, during the first part of the season. Um, again, that's why I moved here. Um, part of the reason why I moved here. So, again, I'm kind of building that foundation. Once they get to where they're holding point and they understand that, now I'm going to introduce a check cord. Um you know, I have some other methods that I, you know, I keep down close to the vest that have been handed down to me through some other people that I kind of, uh, you know, a barrel, if you're familiar with a wool barrel and a wool post, I'm big into that um, for kind of yep. tightening it up. Um, you know, but yeah, you know, I, I won't take a dog out into the field until I know for a fact I can get it back. I'm not big into like, oh, I'll let it, figure, you know, some, you know, and like there's different, like I'm, I'm training dogs for different, different reason than some guy out you know, down the Southeast train them for field trials to make big money running them out on the Ames plantation. Okay. Like they'll let those dogs, they want those dogs to run and they'll, they don't need a name, you know, communal work, you know? So I, I'm a little bit different. I want a dog to hunt a little bit different. I want that dog to hunt for me. You know, we're a team. That's, that's my whole thing. You know, and it, it probably comes from sports, you know, dude, probably I've implemented some of that. You know, I coached baseball for a little bit too, but um, you know, I want that dog to understand that as a team. You don't succeed if I don't 
if I don't succeed and I don't succeed if you don't succeed and we don't succeed if we don't succeed, you know? So I want that dog to understand if you hold point, that means as a team, we're going to get a bird here. You know, and I have some steps kind of as they're growing up, you know, like pigeons, right? I'll keep a pigeon in my vest. We'll go on puppy walks and I'll just kind of get their attention. Hip, everyone kind of looks up and I'll fly a pigeon. No other reason that I just kind of want them to understand I got the birds. Okay. Right. I want, once they kind of get out there, I want them to understand that dad's, you know, you want birds, dad's going to be the guy to kind of, and that allows me to also kind of steer them to, you know, as they get older, they start to kind of trust you that you kind of know what's up, you know? Um, once they get to a stage where like, you know, again, doing that stuff with the pigeon, there's different, there's, if I have a dog that doesn't want to get away, I won't go out. That pigeon thing doesn't really start there. Okay. Start somewhere else. So I don't want to kind of, <laughs> I don't want people to kind of, there's like different steps in here. I'm kind of just like cobbling stuff together without saying too much, but yeah, so that's kind of my theory, man. Again, as birds make a bird dog, once they get to an age rhino and we want to kind of finish them out, you know, there's kind of some different stuff that I do. And that's kind of like where me as a trainer, where I'm, and I don't have a problem saying this, where I'm still growing is like that finishing out process of a dog, taking a dog, not just being finished. Cause for me, my idea of finished is can I kill what can I guide and kill wild birds over you? And can I guide on a plantation over you? That necessarily isn't finished. And what the true word of finish means where a guy's going to take a dog out there and run it, you know, to a master title or run it in a field trial or run it, you know, in Nashville or whatever, you know, whatever you, whatever your aspirations are for your, for your dog. Um, so yeah, like I have some, you know, I'm competitive. So I'm kind of like kind of dabbling my toe in that field trial hunt test world. Um, so yeah, like that's kind of the next progression of me as a trainer, like that, that finishing out process and taking a dog to like, you know, really finished, you know, really finished. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, it's my journey as far as training is just like barely getting started. I feel like, you know, like I feel like I have a great base knowledge. I feel like I know what I'm doing to get a dog where most people, you know, want their dog. Um, but again, like there's just so many guys out there have been doing, there's been guys, out, there's guys out there who are 90 years old, been doing it for 60 years, dude, he knows I'll never catch him, you know, until I'm 90, you know, like it's just, I'm just not, you know. And I don't have a problem saying that. I'm okay saying that. I'm always trying to learn. When I come, when I when I go somewhere, dude, there's someone that's been doing it longer than me, dude. I am annoying. Like I'll follow you on the little kid asking questions because, like, I'll pick everybody's brain. You know, I feel like that's how you grow. That's how I, you know, for me, like being around guys who are better hunters than me and more experienced hunters is how I become a better hunter. That's how you, you know, iron sharpens iron. You know, and not being afraid, like I said, to start a conversation and ask questions. You know. You must right. think, what's the dude going to do? Ignore you? Who you care? You don't know him anyway. You know, you're not going to hurt my feelings, dude. That's like, I love people on social media pick on each other. I love it, dude. That's like, you shouldn't be getting your feelings hurt because someone else is like the way you hunt. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not doing it for, for you. <laughs> I give right. a fuck what you care about, dude. dude. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it because I like doing it. You know, I don't have a problem saying that people, I think sometimes shy away from like, like, oh, I like honey. Like, like, oh, I like to procure my own food. And that's all part of it, dude. But I like hunting, okay? Like, I, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the act of knocking a bird out of the sky with my shotgun. If that makes me a bad person, you know, man, damn. You know, I'll, I'll have to go to to mass and, you know, you know, I don't know, figure something out. But, I'm you know, for me, dogs, you know, like people like to pick on each other for their dogs and stuff. Like, your dog hunts well for you. What do you care Right. Jimmy over there thinks it doesn't matter. You know, as long as you're happy with your dog, if you're having a good time, you're enjoying your dog. I've seen more people be hard on their dogs and me included, you know, included trying to hold yourself to some standard. That's just, you know, because you saw a picture on Instagram that you think that, you know, whatever, you know, like, I, I don't know, like, I feel like you should be doing it for you, you know, and if you're enjoying doing it, then, you know, that's, that's, that's enough. But, you know, yeah. That, anyway, for as far as training goes, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm still, growing um you know my my goal at some point would be like to have where people would come up here and stay place and not to i don't want a guide up here but i'd love people to come stay have a kennel where they can keep their dog and then me just be able to hunt and just meet new people dude and you know who knows maybe write some shitty books about bird hunting or something like that you know i don't know um but <laughs> you know that'd be like my that'd be like my dream you know um you know where i hope to be at some point in the future but you know we'll see how it goes Right now, I'm just enjoying hunting with my friends, you know? Yeah. yeah so I just like to, to keep it simple, stupid method for my dogs. Yeah. So, I it's always as funny, I, dude. As long as I know they're they want to come back to me, they know lull, and I'm not the best teacher of lull. So, 
Mine was just a, well, I tried belly collar. That didn't really work out very good. Yeah, man, I think uh, it's all like steps, right? Like, I, like I'm not a huge belly collar guy. I so I didn't mind. I just did uh, it, just a little bit of sim on the neck, and that's kind of how I. Because yeah. both my dogs are like both like fetch driven. Yeah. So I would stop them. I don't even know how I did it. No, I don't know. <laughs> cash was, cash was a little different. I tried actually doing rigs. I was just like, whoa. Gave him like a just a little bit of stim. I think I watched it off of Standing Stone. So one of the videos yeah. that they did with one of their Dude, yeah, them, them, and then like uh, DT Systems have a great one, and then uh, Willow Creek Kennels, which I have like I've been trying to get a puppy out of their kennels for forever, and I have two from like their lines right now, and they have Minnesota. some videos on YouTube. Minnesota, yeah, Minnesota, yeah, yeah, is Minnesota up for Minnesota? I think something like that. Yeah, I uh, say the one of the guys we just did the podcast with a few weeks ago. Now he has three dogs from Willow Creek. So, I mean, dude, I mean, in my opinion, like the perennial short hair kennel right now in the in the country, them and Standing Stone and Standing Stone, you know, lines are heavily influenced from their lines. You know, so like when I first got my short hair eight years ago, I watched all his videos straight through. You know, I had an idea of how to like train a bird dog. Cause my grandfather was very basic, you know, very old school. Like that dog, you shoot a gun over it and it's gunshot. Ah, that dog sucks. Get it out of here. <laughs> you know, get me another one, you know, like after getting that first dog and like I, a book that I always recommend to people was called water dog. Um, I believe the guy named Richard Walters, Walters. I think we were talking about it when I was on with the, uh, the beer 30 uh, podcast, but that book's great. Just from day one, when you get a puppy, it's geared more towards lab guys, but for for even for a bird dog person, you know, that first, like, introduction into having a dog, it's a great book to just read through, you know. Um, there's so many trainers out there, man, you know, like, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of trainers out there, and there's some good ones, you know, there's, I, I would, if I'm going to send my dog to a trainer, if I was going to send my dog to a trainer, which I never have, um, you know, I'd be pretty particular about it, but like you were talking about, like, with the belly collar. I'm not a huge belly collar guy, but my buddy who's 10 times the dog trainer I am, he's huge into the belly collar. You know, he's always telling me, like, I do yeah. I'll, I'll do a woe post and I'll have a, a half hitched around the waist. He's like, you're already introducing the, the basics to how to start getting introducing a woe collar, you know, excuse me, waist, what do you call it? Flank, flank collar. Um, why don't you just go down that road? I just, you know, I never feel like I have to pressure my dog that much. I hate applying pressure to my dog if I don't have to. And I'm probably a little bit on the softer side of that aspect of it on that point, uh, which is probably something I need to work on. But, you know, again, I feel like I, I cut through a lot of those problems. The birds do a lot of that teaching for me, which is like a super old school, like theory, but you know, I feel like the wild birds do the best teaching, man. It's like a dog's creeping. Oh yeah. Try creeping on like, you know, wild, a wild, that's not running, you know, try creeping on a wild sharp tail. That's been shot at a couple of times already. This ain't gonna right. happen, you know. Now that being said, like, you know, I just sold a female uh, to an individual, and like, she was rock steady for me. I, and she had been a stubborn dog; she'd been a hard dog to kind of, you know, she came along a little slower. But guy over all year, he got her new handler, and dude, it was like she went right back to being a puppy. I felt like you know, I felt terrible, right? You know, a few weeks, you know, he put his own train method on her, and she's tied right back up, you know. So I feel like you know, too, it's like a constant. It's just like, you know, you guys, I know you guys said you guys play ball. You know, it's like you take the off season off. If you don't work on the off season, you come into that fall ball game. And you haven't seen a pitch yet, you know, all, all summer long. Like you're behind the eight ball already. And so I feel like a lot of people, a lot of times, too, they'll come into that first, that hunting season after the off season, not having, or they think they've done a lot of training. You know, they've been to, you know, three, four NAVDA, you know, meetups over the summer. You know, they've been to a couple of training seminars over the summer. But your dog has been, you know, 90% of the summer has just been being a dog, you know. So when you go back yeah. out to that first part of the year, there is a, you know, reacclimation process, right? And as the older the dog gets, the less that is. But even my old short hair, you know, you let him sit around the house and be a pet for a few months and then take him out chasing birds, he's going to be a little loose for a minute. You know, you know I think people got to remember, too, like, they, they're dogs. They're not robots. Like, they have a mind. They have free will. Like, you know, they kind of know what's up out there, you know. Um, that's sort of something I'm trying to kind of keep reminding myself, too, is like, hey, enjoy it. Like, we're out here hunting because we enjoy it, 
none of us has to hunt to, to, you know, put food necessarily on the table anymore. As far as it's not life and death, you know, none of us have to go down there and, and kill a mastodon with a spear. So like when you're out there with your dog hunting, like enjoy it, you know, like even if your dog bumps some birds, like I know it's a lot of effort. I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else is like, man, remember the dog's having a good time too. You know, like, yeah, there, there is all that training you put into it and like keeping a certain standard, but man, if I got to tell people like, you know, make sure like, that's for me, I'm out here trying to make memories because why am I trying to make memories? I lost some friends and people close to me at a young age. And I realized that in life, at the end of life, I'm going to be in the, a hospital bed. All of us are, and we're gonna, not going to have anything but our memories in a life that you lived. And so like, for me, like I said, wild birds and wild places, that's what brings me the most fulfillment. My fiance enjoys doing it with me. So her and I are able to kind of travel and see the country and like go to places that like, we've been to some parts of the country that no, you would never go to for any other reason than chasing feathers. Uh, you ever been on highway two in Nevada out in the middle of nowhere? Like, dude, you're never going out there for any other reason than to drive through to get somewhere or, you know, to go chase birds. You know, I've, you know, been seeing the painted hills in Oregon. I've seen, you know, some gorgeous places. I'm not bragging. Just like I'm trying to encourage people like, hey, go out there and take that trip out of state. You know, if you can afford it, you can do it. See other state. I know I just say hundred a lot of shit different places. You know, I think even guys who I would encourage someone from North Dakota, like you might live in the best bird country in the world. Dude, go see someone else's, you know, best bird country. You know, like dude, it's it's all part of like that 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 experience, man. I feel like that's something as hunters, you know, there's been a lot of focus on like, how do we recruit more hunters? And there's been a lot of like focus on like, you know, the, the, the food aspect of it and like this conservation aspect, which is dude, I'm a hey, conservation, hundred percent of the way. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm saying is the way that I think to kind of get more people into the conservation is like taking them and showing them some of these places. And I've never taken somebody hunting with a dog who did not enjoy it mostly because of the dog i've taken people deer hunting and we shot a deer and it was fun but they were like eh. i've never taken someone hunting with a dog and them not had a great time and wanted to do it again and i feel like dogs can be like and i have it dude on my website on my kennel it says i believe that dogs are maybe the best conservation tool for multiple reasons and one of it is for outreach because who doesn't love a dog if you don't love a dog you're a serial killer like i, I don't even have a problem saying that <laughs> I had someone tell me there. You don't love a dog. You probably probably like cats and nobody likes cats. Egyptians like the cats. And look at, dude, I mean, they're not even around anymore. (laughs) Ancient Egyptians. That's a bad joke. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, getting to the end of our show here, we have some questions for Michael, like we always do at the end of our show. Usually, all questions about the same. So, First question for you, Michael, would be, uh, what's your favorite bird to hunt? Man, it's hard. It's hard to choose. I like them all for different reasons. But if you put a gun to my head and you said, Michael, you can only chase one upland bird for the rest of your life, it would probably be rooster pheasants. If not, valley quail, 1A, 1B. Dirty little seer, though, if you put a gun to my head and said you can only hunt one more thing for the rest of your life, I would pick mallard, greenhead mallard ducks over small water. That's probably my... uh, my favorite way to hunt is probably hunting waterfowl and spe- specifically mallards and specifically in tight water. If I had to pick one. All right. We're going to go on to question two then kind of like a rapid fire here. Come on. What's your favorite dog breed, but it can't be one that you own. Ooh, if I didn't own a short hair or I couldn't own a short hair or a, a cocker, a setter, I'll probably end up getting a setter here pretty soon just to have one. My buddy Rob Kilborn, Woodcocker Kennels in New Hampshire, has some great setters out of Atlantic Way and uh, Yukon Cornelius, which if you follow the bird dog world. But I love a good setter. Tyler Webster, probably the first guy I hunted with over setters. And um, I'll tell a quick story. He, we were hunting the first time I was with him. He had Rusty as a young dog and then a dog named Annie. Or what was her name? So, Annie? Anyway, another dog. And we watched her, I watched the rooster run across a pond and go underneath a little sapling. And those two dogs went over there and worked that rooster and they got on point and there was a pond in the background. There was a little roll in the hill and the sun was setting behind that roll in the hill and the wind was blowing on the North Dakota prairie. And both his setters, if you follow his podcast or watch his YouTube, are white coated and their white coats were blowing in the wind. 
And they were both just tall as could be, pointing that rooster, shot him over those two dogs. And, dude, after that, I knew one day I'd eventually have the setter. So probably an English setter, particularly a tricolor probably. But I know everyone loves a tricolor, but you know, I like I could get a nice, pretty setter. All right. Yeah, I say setters are beautiful dogs. Can't go wrong with one of those, I don't think. I say uh, question three. What's the gun you're shooting now, and what's your dream of upland gun? Right now, I switch. Um, I shoot a, a 16 gauge TriStar. Um, nothing crazy, so a little banger. I love a little over under. Um, I bought that last year. Um, so yeah, I've been banging that around the prairie uh, for the last seven years. Before that, I've been shooting a Brownie Maxis. It was my guy gun, just a banger. Just it's all pitted and chips and what out of it um but my dream i grew up shooting remington 1100s and remington 1187s i own two uh, my dream um, i should have bought one last year i had one of the gun store up here someone had a consignment i didn't buy it like an idiot i want a 28 gauge remington 1100 a 410 and a 20 gauge all 1100 just all the way up would be my dream um just like i grew up shooting them dude they cycle great to me it's like the when when auto loaders still had some style in class uh, the Remington 1100. Yeah. Nice. So, next question here, then. What's your favorite place to hunt, and why is it North Dakota? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I tell you what, man. If I mean, my favorite place to hunt is where I live, right here. I mean, it's the northwest corner of North Dakota and the northeast corner of Montana. I mean, if you like I said, if you drew a line from Great Falls up to Haver, and then you drew a line, you know, all the way across to Minot, and you just drew took that chunk of the world out and made it an island. I live on that island. Um, you know, don't come here and hunt, but, I mean, you got everything, right? You got some of the biggest white-tailed deer in the country, monster mule deer. You got waterfowl. You got all the upland birds. I mean, within an hour drive of my house, I can hunt every upland species that Montana offers. You're talking so about I mean, North Dakota, right? Well, both. <laughs> I mean, both. I mean, both, man. I mean, North Dakota, like, the first, the first year I hunted North Dakota – I went up there for a week. I had my best friend at the time, my best hunting buddy. Uh, we met Tyler. I guess I met Ron. You know, Tyler just showed us. I mean, Tyler's the greatest ambassador for North Dakota there could ever be. He might as well just run for fucking governor. But uh, he just takes <laughs> us out across the prairie. It was the second week of November. It was 50 degrees. It was gorgeous. And we just hunted for like 10 straight days. And it was, I mean, it stole my heart. I mean, the same way the first time I came to Montana and hunted, you know, um, it really is a unique you know, part of the country. I really look forward to eventually getting down, like I said, to Arizona and seeing uh, you know, the, the desert and kind of that different type of landscape and beauty, you know. Um, you know, everywhere kind of holds a special place. You know, I mean, I, I love hunting chucker in the in the mountains of Nevada. You know, I love the challenge. I love the beauty of that. You know, I've hunted bobwhite quail in Kansas and I've hunted them in Georgia and hunting them in the piney woods amongst the wiregrass. And, you know, the broom sage is, you know, there's something spiritual about it. You know, there's like a lot of history there. You know, my, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm part African-American. My uh, great-great-grandfather was a sharecropper in, in South Georgia, you know. So, like, it was, like, a kind of a spiritual experience for me to go down there and just kind of, like, see the dogmen, you know, um, you know, walk across some of the same plantations that Darrell Smith walks across and guys like that who I look up to. Um, so, I mean, if I had to pick one, like I said, I'd, I'd pick up here if I had to pick anywhere. But everywhere holds, like, such a special place. You know, Southeast Kansas – is extremely unique place to hunt. I I mean Idaho. I <laughs> I can just keep naming places, dude. But Idaho, you know, Southern Idaho, I freaking love. I love Southern Idaho. I I, I was gonna live there before I picked here, you know, just because, you know, a sleep, you know, a little bit of a sleeper state. Uh, that's all I'll say. It's just, it's a great place. You know, you can get into different types of species there, and some of the species I like to hunt are still in good number there. You know, Oregon. You know, the West Coast is kind of slept on for birds. You know, you can go up and down the West Coast. Even in states that you think, like you said, you know, California, you know, was, you know I don't know what it's like really bringing a gun into California as a non-resident because I was always a resident. But, um, you know, you go up and down the West Coast and get into quail everywhere, everywhere. I mean, that's mountain and valley quail. There's not, I mean, obviously mountain quail don't hold as much of a strong population as valley, just kind of, you know, kind of the, their habitat and whatnot. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, I guess my friends would be upset and say that I should say probably the rice country of California, but – those days are long gone. It's probably up here, North 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 Dakota and Montana. I say, going into question five, 
what's on the horizon for you in the 23-24 season? Yeah, um, man, I wish, I, you know, this upcoming season I'll be up here in Montana for most of the year. I got, you know, um, my dad drew a deer tag, so he's going to be coming out here hunting. So I'll be up in Montana pretty much all of September and October. Um, when November rolls around, I'm going to push over to, like I said, out to Oregon, guiding out there um, on, a, on a ranch, um, which should be you know, a lot of fun. Um, so most of my bird hunting is going to be up here. I'll probably start over to North Dakota for a little bit, do some hunting with my buddies over there just because it's so close. I really, really want to get down to Kansas and get after a prairie chicken at some point. Um, but again, dude, I always, I say, I've said that for three years in a row now. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how, what the, what the schedule entails. I'll sneak a lot of waterfowling in there. There'll probably be on you know, my off days, quite a bit of chucker hunting. The area I'm going back to guiding, I've guided it there previously and then quite a bit of hunting and holds a good amount of chucker. Um, so probably doing quite a bit of that, but yeah, um, that's kind of, I got a deer tag up here, so I'll, I'll have to devote a few days to trying to knock down a buck and get some meat in the freezer, but uh, that's pretty much it for 23-24. Um, I said my buddy's getting a, a waterfowl operation off the ground too, so we'll see how kind of that goes. But most of it's going to be up here, you know, in our neck of the woods, kind of kind of dicking around up here and getting some of these young dogs ready to go for the season. So, nice. I'm taking some dogs in too for, in the fall to kind of run for people to keep them in shape and whatnot. So Nice. So, Michael, where can people find you on uh... – Instagram or any social, all your social media platforms. Yeah. So I'm uh, only, uh, actually, no, I am on Facebook now again. Uh, Instagram uh, at the Roman Uplander. Um, Facebook by the same name. I'm not really on Facebook a ton. I, I kind of hate Facebook. You can find me really on Instagram. Like I said, at the Roman Uplander. Um, I also have a page for my kennel uh, at Mortara Family Kennels. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if you're ever looking to come up to Montana, like you boys, I know, I think why you said you'd be out here at some point, but if you're up here looking for a place to stay and I'd love to hunt with anyone, really, I like to hunt with new people uh, and meet new people. Um, you find me on, are we, I, what, what I, excuse me. My kennel has a website as well. Mortara family kennels at G at a Mortara family kennels.com. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, you guys can find me there. Um, I'm usually on Instagram a bunch, posting what I, what I got going on, training videos of what we got going on, working the dogs. The other day, I was messing with some Drake mallards here in the front yard that were chasing a hen around. So, I got some stuff planned for the future. I hope to do a lot more filming this year. Uh, kind of just, I don't have any aspirations to do filming other than I like to just kind of film for myself and me and my friends and have a good time and make jokes and, and enjoy it and kind right. of have the memories to kind of look back on. But uh, yeah, that's where you guys could find me. Um, one last thing too, like I know I've said a lot about hunting out of state. Like, I just want to like I want to continue to encourage everyone to like, you know, I think social media is a great tool uh, for for a lot of different reasons, but for hunting as well to kind of you know our community has always been very fractured, um, so social media has been a great tool to kind of bring our community together. But also as it's kind of come together, uh, social media as it tends to do has also kind of created new fractures um, in that community. So I want to encourage everyone, like, you know, I. As hunters, we lose our rights by us not sticking together. It really just – that's what it comes down to, bottom line. I'm going to say, you know, I know people from Montana are sick and tired of guys from California moving out here. Totally get it. Totally get it. Um, I'll say as a guy, I used to go and sit in on the fishing game meetings because I that's how much I love this. And, like, a guy who was a mentor of mine told me, like, hey, this is what you need to do is make your voice heard. Um, if we don't make our voices heard and we don't sit together as one voice – None of, this is going all going to be gone for all of us here in the future. Um, so I just want to encourage everyone, man. Like even if someone does something different, I understand there's some people out there that are cheesy. I hate the Instagram influencer thing. You know, I think like we all should be very humble and realize that none of us really know what the hell we're doing out here. It's really the dogs that make us all look good. Um, but you know, I encourage everyone. You know, keep keep sharing that stuff on Instagram, even if you get hate, man. I mean, people, I, someone out there is enjoying seeing it. You know. It's, I really, I really enjoy seeing the community kind of like sharing that stuff and being proud of like what we, what we accomplish and what we do and proud of what we are as conservationists. I mean, we all know this as hunters. It's hard to, I, you know, I'm constantly having these battles with people about like, no, we are the conservationists, right? And you try to like do it in a humble and, you know, gracious way. But um, yeah, man, and like, you know, I keep, and I wanted to encourage guys, you know, something that I do look for when I hunt out of state is do kind of look at like what kind of impact we are having as out-of-state hunters, you know what I mean? Like, I was talking to a biologist from Wyoming, 
And one of the sage grouse units in Wyoming got shut down because whereas in previous years, their top number of birds getting killed was between 15 and 25 birds. Last year, they killed 400 in that unit. So again, like, of course, we all want everyone to be have success and go out there and have a good time. But again, like if we're all sending everyone to the same spots and we're all putting an undue amount of pressure on the birds then we're not going to have the birds in the future, especially a species like the sage grouse, which is already kind of teetering on that edge. Um, just something to think about food for thought, do something that I sit back and ponder as I, uh, you know, as, as Thomas Jefferson said, smoke hemp and stare off as far as the eye could see. Um, and he was a founding father. So there you go. Can't argue with that. Well, I will say this too is early on when we first started the podcast, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said something about the upland hunting community being very supportive and, you know, about 99% of the people love to see what, no matter what it is, you could have five followers on Instagram. You just started and you post some pictures of your hunts and people love it. You get those assholes still, but like, I think it's the whole yeah. hunting community in general. You know, like, dude, I think, yeah, I think it's people too in general, man. Like, look at anything. You can post anything on the internet, dude. You will get 10 people saying, dude, you are awesome and great. You'll get one guy, you know, that's an asshole, you know, and it's usually just trying to get a reaction. Um, but dude, you're 100% right. Like, I've met, honestly, I've met some, you know, like, dude, you're going to meet shitty people in life. Okay. You keep meeting people, you're going to run across some assholes. But in this community, dude, the outreach, what was the, there's a young lady who works for Pheasants Forever. Her dog fell off a cliff. And people were giving money to her, you know, and like supporting her and that, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that you want to see, man. Is like, again, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, there was no hunting community because it was just the community. <laughs> Everyone yes. hunted. There was no, there was no hunting community. It was just, but now as, you know, as we're kind of becoming the, you know, the, I don't want to say the exception to the rule, but right. You know, I mean, there's not what, one out of every 10 person in the United States or something, one out of every hundred, I don't know what the hell the number is anymore, but, you know, sticking together, like you said, like, you know, being positive. It's like, hey, man, it may not be your cup of tea. Keep rolling. I mean, keep rolling. You know, everyone kind of sees, and I, you know, I get, I like to shit talk too. I grew up in sports. You know I mean? There's like a little bit of like, you know, teaching your friends, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, I really think if we're not careful, we don't kind of come together and kind of like realize that, look, man, if we're not all in this together, like, I don't care what state you're from. I don't care how you hunt. I don't care if you have private land, you know, or if you, you know, out of a layout blind and dirt, like, whatever, dude. Like, we all have to come together for the common good, which is keeping this way of life going. And you know what? If we don't, then the wildlife that we love is going to be gone as well. Because when everyone needs Tesla batteries, you know what I mean? Like, they're going <laughs> to, if there ain't us protecting the wildlife, there ain't no more space left. I don't know. I don't mean to get on my soapbox, but, you know. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today on the podcast, and we appreciate everything that you we talked about today. And awesome, yeah. well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to a doofus like me ramble for a little bit and rant. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, everybody, th thanks everybody for uh, listening to another episode of the Apple Nomads podcast. We'll we'll catch you on the next one.